Okay, a couple of things before we get into our text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 12. Lisa had mentioned announcements. The marriage course is going to be next Sunday. I want to say just a little bit more about that, if I may. Um, or the marriage, the institute we're going to do. I mean, all of us that are married know that marriage is a lot like, this sounds terrible, but having a toilet. I don't know. That's not, that's not what I mean to say. But to- your toilet gets clogged sometimes, right? And you need, you need to fix it. You need to unclog it. Or your sewage system will get clogged and backed up. And if you don't unfix it and unclog it, the clog will just get worse and worse and worse, right? That happened in our, at our home where our sewer line actually broke the clay tiles out by the, um, by the alley, and it got all backed up, and it was, trust me, it was a, it was a huge mess. And so what that, that thing is next Sunday is, is we just want to give you a few skills on how to unclog when it's clogged and how to keep it from getting super clogged. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, if you show up, it's not like that means you have a horrible marriage. It's just like you're showing up saying, I'm like everybody else. It gets clogged sometimes, and I want to get better at managing those clogs. So um, another thing, we just said uh, goodbye to Tom and Jan Litbert. That's kind of, they're having to move to Kansas City. Tom has been, Tom and Jan have been here for a long, long time. They're like bedrock foundational to 12th. We've known them the whole time we were here. We're sad to see them go. I know some of you were able to see them at the end of last service. They hung around. But if you know Tom and Jan, there is a gift on the back. You can sign something for them, sign the back of it, and maybe give them a call or something. And Kelly, is this your last Sunday? Or you? Is it? Kelly's, this is Kelly's last Sunday. So, Kelly, we want to bless you. I, can I say a prayer? A, a prayer for you, and I want to say a prayer for the Lippers. So let's pray just a minute. Father, thank you for Tom and Jan for their life. That just their solidity here and their faith and there was so much that they've done just being the gospel witness of you here. Um, thank you for, for Kelly, for the boys, um, Lord, for bringing here just a, a time of life where that um, wasn't easy, but we thank you for her being a part of our body. And as they are moving on, Father, we just want to send them um, as ministers to wherever they're going that they would, um, we know you're going to put them around people that they can influence for you and the gospel, and we pray that they would continue to be salt and light wherever they are. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so grab, if you want to say something to Kelly too today, that would be great. One more thing about the New Testament. We're halfway through. We're in July. We're actually a little over halfway through. And it's not going to be long, and we're going to be done with Acts, and we're going to be spending the rest of the year in the epistles. In the letters, let me just say that, in the letters of Paul, of John, and, you know, I know that there are still some individuals who, for whatever reason, didn't get in on it or didn't start doing this with us back in January, and I want to tell you, if you have not been doing this, didn't get a New Testament just to do yourself or didn't grab somebody, or if you've been visiting for a few weeks and you're like, how come this guy keeps preaching just totally random topics every week? It's because we're following our reading through the New Testament. But if you don't have one, we have some. I really encourage you to, to get in it. It still is so powerful to me every day to be in His Word. And Acts has been very more meaningful this year than ever of any time I've read it. For whatever reason, God's speaking to me a lot through it. Um, I, I know, you know, I heard of a couple of guys who weren't doing it and they're friends and they're like, hey, we need to do that. So um, we do have New Testament. So let us know if you're interested in jumping in. Okay, I want to start with a couple of questions. Um, 
couple of questions. Have you ever prayed for something convinced that you did not have enough faith to get it? Have you ever said a prayer, but you were convinced you didn't have enough faith to get an answer? Or have you ever not prayed something because you knew ahead of time you didn't have enough faith to get the answer, so you just didn't even pray it? Or have you ever felt dejected in your prayer life, just this sense that I don't have enough faith or my faith is not strong enough? If you've ever felt any of those things or done any of those things, then uh, join the club, at least my club. And I think this story has a lot to say to us, if that's ever been your feeling. So we are going to look at a story um, that is for people who have ever struggled with prayer and faith, who've ever struggled with that. Because I really think this story is, helps to dispel a false notion that I have, and I think a lot of us have, about the connection between faith and prayer. So I think it's a really significant story. So Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. And by the way, we have, um, for about a month, we've been having New Testaments in the back. or not New Testaments, Bibles, whole Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can grab one and take it home. There are the green ones back there. Or if you're in the service and you want to open the Bible to read the text, I'm not going to have the text on the screen. So if you want to have a Bible to look at, I know they're on your phone, but if you want a physical one, um, feel free to grab one or... Raise your hand. We can make sure somebody gets you one. But I'm in Acts chapter 12, and I want to start reading in verse 1. And here's what we're told in Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. We talked last week that the persecution had really ramped up. Now King Herod's getting in on the game. And this story today happened almost exactly 10 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection almost 10 years later, in A.D. 43. And it was this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged. I talked about Herod about three months ago, about Jesus, and how, how much he stood up to Herod, if you remember that. Um, when we did that, we talked about the three brothers, the Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, who were reigning in Israel at the time of Jesus. Herod the Great was the one who was alive and reigning when Jesus was born and killed all the children in um, Bethlehem. Um, if you remember, I had told you that Herod, he was such a horrible guy that he had killed uh, his, one of his sons that he was afraid was ambitious. That was Aristobulus that he killed. And Aristobulus was married to Miriam, who was the mother of Herod Agrippa. And Herod was only three years old, Herod Agrippa, when his father was murdered by Herod the Great. And then Herod um, ended up ki killing, um, uh, killing his wife, too. And so this Herod that is, I mean, look at that dude. That's the kind of dude that would do bad stuff to the church, right? Look at that face. So that's Herod Agrippa that we see here today. We're going to see in a few weeks, Paul is going to stand before a Herod. And the Herod Paul stands before is Herod Agrippa II. So we're going to see him in chapters 25 and 26. But this is kind of, this is the Herod that we're dealing with today. So he's intending to persecute him. Verse 2, it says, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Put to death with a sword. This is a Roman-style execution. It, th that's a nice way of saying he was beheaded. The Jews would not allow beheading in Israel except for one thing, and that was for apostasy. And they did consider James to be an apostate who was following this upstart Jesus, right? And so he beheads James. This is the first of the 12. I mean, other than Judas who kills himself, this is the first of his followers to die, James. Um, a pretty shocking thing. And in verse 3, then when he saw this met with approval from the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So he's getting all excited. He's gaining in popularity. Um, the pressure's on the church. Uh, so 
I'm commenting, by the way, if you haven't figured it out as we go through this. So he grabbed Peter also. This happened during the festival unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison. Here is the prison that he put him in. It's um, the fortress, um, the, um, the Antonia fortress that the Romans built right attached to the temple so they could quickly quell any uprising, including anything in the temple. And I want you to know that thing, I mean, it looks like that is maximum security. That is the highest level security that a, that they, that a, um, a, that a king under Rome could put somebody under. So they put him in prison. They put Peter in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads and four soldiers each, something that the Romans did. Herod intended to bring out for public tri- him out for public trial after the Passover. So as soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is done, Passover, Unleavened Bread, or back-to-back, as soon as that's done, he's going to bring him out for public trial, and the assumption is he's going to execute him just like he executed James, put an end to this movement. And, I mean, he's a smart dude because it says he saw the approval of the James thing, and so he's going to do this right after the Passover. There were normally 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem living in the city. For Passover, it would swell to a million. And he's waiting to the day after, before everybody's left, a million people. He's going to do this show trial and execute Peter. So verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly praying for him. And we're going to see in a minute, they were actually hiding out in a house, probably several houses in the area, probably living in great fear. Um, Initially, the people in Jerusalem loved the church, approved of them, persecution had ramped up. The three main followers of Jesus are um, James, are Peter, James, and John, right? James, one of the top three, just got executed. Peter's in prison now. I'll do this finger. How about that? Peter's in prison now. And that, the whole, I mean, there, I'm sure there's a lot of fear, like, is this whole movement going to end or what's going to happen? But they're praying earnestly. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And you can imagine, that's a really bright light, right? This bright light shines in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, because the light didn't wake him up. And this to me is actually very amazing, because Peter knows he's going to have the public trial the next day, likely be executed, have his head cut off, just like James. And he is so sound asleep, his trust in the sovereignty of God that even though he knows he's likely to get executed, he's just, he's just sleeping like a baby. The light doesn't even wake him up. The angel has to strike him. That word is a really strong word in the Greek. It's not like a little poke, which is what I imagine. It is to hit somebody hard. He had to give him a hard jab to the ribs to wake Peter up. So he woke him up, and he said, Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him. When I read this, this reminded me of, because Peter's still kind of groggy, right? And he's just telling him like everything. Put your shoes on, get your your socks, shoes, tie your shoes, get on your jacket. It reminded me when I read it of, I mean, how many of you with little children, you've taken a trip out of town? Like our trip to Indiana was like a 13-hour total with all the stops. So you're like, hey, let's leave at 12 midnight and drive through the night, and the kids sleep most of the time, and we don't have to worry about too much. I mean, am I, I'm sure other families, my parents used to do that on our trip to Texas with us. You drag them out, you know, you drag them out of bed at midnight, and they're tired, and you're getting them dressed, and you're like, you know, don't forget to put, oh, put that shoe on that foot, and 
and they're just following you each step of the way. That's what this sounds like to me. You know, put on your clothes. All right, Peter, now your sandals. Wrap the, no, wrap the cloak around you. Follow me. So Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, so he's still like half asleep, not sure what's happening. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. For the younger generation here, even for my generation, this is not simply Jedi games happening here, Jedi mind tricks. This is the real deal. This is a miracle of God in time and space history of setting him free. And so verse 11, then Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. This house, let me show you a picture. This is a picture of a Jewish house um, where you would have the main house, you would have the storage room with the manger and upper room, and the outside door with a courtyard. It was a house probably like this. This house was most likely, scholars believe, was the, the, was the house with the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper, and it's the house where they met in Acts chapter 1, that it belonged to uh, John Mark's mother, Mary, this house. And so there's a group in there praying in this house. And we're told that Peter, he knocked at that outer entrance, so he's knocking at that door. They're all praying, either in the main house or in this upper room, and they sent a servant named Rhoda who came to answer the door. So she comes and answers the door. You know, who is it? Um, I, they're in deep, the door is locked. They're in deep fear, I think, of them being imprisoned. Um, and so she comes and answers the door. Who is it? I, in the way my mind works, I imagine she, Rhoda was an Indiana girl like my wife, Pat, uh, if you grow up in Indiana, you're called a Hoosier, right? My wife's a Hoosier. I'm a Jayhawk. She's a Hoosier. There's a lot of debate as to where that nickname Hoosier came from, but one of the main theories is, is that when the first settlers were there, when people would come into Indiana to visit them and they would knock at the door, the people would frequently answer from within inside, Hoosier, Hoosier, and that's how they got to be called Hoosiers. And really, that really, Laura, that's really, they really believe that's where it came from. Anyways, to me, she's a Hoosier. I mean, she's in the end, like, who's here? Who's here? And he's like, Peter. So verse 14, when she recognized his voice, she was so overjoyed, so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it, left him at the door, right? And exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. But look at their response in verse 15. You are out of your mind, they told her. In the, the New Century Version we're reading, they said, you're crazy. The NET Bible, you've lost your mind. I love the King James Version, thou art mad. Isn't that good? Thou art mad. That's like Shakespeare or something. Thou art mad, they told her. When she kept insisting, and this Greek word means it was just keep, she kept on and kept on, she kept insisting, kept insisting that it was so, because they're not listening to her. They said, well, it must be his angel. For a while, I didn't understand what that meant, um, did some digging in and found out something that the Jews believed at that day. The Bible doesn't teach this. It was a superstition, but they believed that a person's guardian angel would, if it showed up physically, would have the appearance of the person they were guarding. And so what they're saying is, is that's his guardian angel. Peter is not out of prison. That's only his guardian angel that's out there. And so while she keeps insisting and they keep not listening, verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking, the same, kind, the same verb. He kept knocking and knocking and knocking. I mean, can you imagine? He just got out of prison. Don't you think, I, like, I want to get in there really fast. He's standing out in the street. 
And so when they opened the door and saw him, they were, what's it say? Astonished. They were astonished. They couldn't believe it. And so verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand, you know, be quiet. Probably that he created a big stir. He doesn't want to get arrested. And they just, he described how the Lord brought him out of prison. And he said, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. And that James, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus who eventually became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Now, here, here's why this story is so important to me in this topic of faith and prayer. Uh, and I don't want you to miss this detail that's really important, that they refused to believe that Peter was out of prison. They refused to believe it. They were praying for it, but they refused to believe it. We're told they were praying fervently, but when it happened, they wouldn't believe it. And I was thinking about that. Like, how could those two things go together? And here's what I think was going on. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting that got pretty fervent? You're asking for a really big deal. I've been to some of those. And everybody's just really crying out and asking the Lord for something. And it's a really big thing that seems like a miracle kind of thing. And while you're praying inside, you're thinking, this is too big. It's not going to happen. And you think you're the only one who thinks that because everybody's praying so fervently. But the truth of the matter is, is probably everybody in the group's thinking that. Like, there is no way God's getting him out of prison. We're pretty fervent, but this is, this is beyond his ability. So here is, um, it's a given. It's a given that faith and trust are required for my relationship with God. But here's what this story tells me. This is, to me, the theme of all of this, the most important thing. That the amount, the level, the intensity, the size, the strength, the purity of my faith is not, it is not the key to God answering my prayers and acting. My faith is not the key. But I think many times what we think is, is the amount, the level, the intensity, the size, the strength, the purity of my faith is the key to God answering my prayers and acting on my behalf. We think that our prayers being answered or not answered depends upon us and upon our faith. At least that's me. And I think many of us think that if our faith is tainted with the smallest degree of doubt, or any weakness at all, that God won't answer. He won't answer. And that's why this story is so important. Because it teaches me what I have frequently misunderstood about biblical faith, the true nature of biblical faith. And so I want to talk about faith and prayer this morning. And there's three things I want you to leave knowing about faith and prayer. And the first one is this. By its very nature, faith must have an object. By its very nature, faith must have an object. That's why we always talk about you put your faith in someone or something, right? Um, and here's the key question is, what is the true object of my faith? What's the true? What's the real object of my faith? And to, I ask that of you when you pray. What's the true object of your faith? What are you really trusting in? Because in a biblical understanding of faith, God is the sole object of faith. He's the sole object of faith. That's in the biblical understanding. But I think many times, at least in my own life, my, the object of my faith is not in God, but it's in something else. And rather than putting my faith in God, what I do is I put my faith in my faith. I put my faith in my faith. This is a really important distinction, this difference between putting my faith in God and putting my faith in my faith. Because when I put my faith in my faith, Okay? I'm believing that the answer to my prayer depends more on my faith than it depends upon God. So I was just thinking, how do you know when you're doing this? When your faith really isn't in God, but it's in your faith. Um, 
Here's when I think that's happening. When you pray something and you don't get an answer, no answer to it or a no, and your first thought is, what's wrong with me? Once again, it hasn't happened just like it always does, and the problem is my faith. I just don't have enough faith. I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes at home. I don't have what it takes at work. I don't have what it takes in my faith with God. If you've ever felt that way, that's a good sign that we're putting our faith in our faith. Or if you're sure something will be answered because you've ginned up some kind of emotion and you're like, man, I've got really strong faith in this one, so I'm sure it's going to get answered. If you've ever thought that, then this, that's putting faith in my faith. Or if you're sure something will not get answered because you haven't ginned up that kind of emotional feeling, right? Or when I'm um, convinced that I won't get my prayer answered because I have some inward doubts as to whether it will get answered, and because I've got those doubts, God isn't going to do it. I was talking this week with some guys and asking, why do we struggle with that? And we kind of came up with a few things of what we think causes us, I think as humans, but I think in our culture, that we tend to put our faith in our faith rather than God. Here's, here, here they are. One is false theology. Uh, the health and wealth gospel, the word of faith movement, which we do not believe here, but I still think it's influenced Christians in America that just believe it and you'll receive it message, okay? I think some of it comes from that. And comes from a lot of false cultural narratives. We hear all the time in our culture, if you only have faith, anything is possible, right? Our culture tells us all that, that all the time. Or our culture's emphasis on self-help. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps that, that everything depends on you. Everything depends on me. It's up to me. And if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. I also think it's our culture's influence. This has been growing for several generations. It's really big right now. Our emphasis on inward feelings, what Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. I just saw Moana the other night, and one of the songs of Moana teaches this. We hear it all the time, that truth and reality are ultimately found inside of me and my heart. We're hearing that message all the time these days. I think one final one is just our sin nature. I think that insidious self-focus that sin brings to where everything has to be about me. So even in my prayer life, Ultimately, it's really got to be about me, right? Well, here's the problem with us believing that our faith is the key to answered prayer. Here's the problem. We're actually creating in my minds, I think, a fail-safe formula that we think God has to follow, that he's constrained by. And I want to show you the math of this, putting my faith in my faith. Here's what the math looks like if we were to do an equation. The math, the, the equation behind placing my faith in my faith, that me plus big faith means a yes, to my prayer. Me plus small faith means a no, or just no answer, silence, crickets. I talked about this first service, and between services, somebody showed me a text they got from somebody, and they were talking about prayer, and the way they talked about it was exactly like this. It was an equation, and the equation worked fail-safe every single time. And I want, to, I want you to see from this story, there is no truth in this formula. Do you see that? There's no truth in this story. Because that early church had small or no faith that Peter was going to get released, and yet God did it, right? So the formula is not true. It doesn't work. It's not biblical. And I want you to see that that is transactional. And our culture is all about everything being transactional right now. It's a formula that if I do this, then this will happen. If I don't do this, then this won't happen. And I want you to know that is a very self-centered view of faith. That is not God-centered at all. 
It's a form of earning, which is the polar opposite of grace. God does not operate this way. God is not transactional. Jesus is not transactional. Religion is about transactional. I do this sacrifice for this God. This God has to bless me. Jesus is not transactional. It's about a relationship with a living person. And faith is putting my trust in a person. We serve Aslan, that great lion, that untamed lion who I love, and we dare not put him in a box or try to constrain him into my formula, a formula of my making of how faith and prayer works, okay? So first thing, we've seen faith needs an object. I want you to see the second, and it's this, that faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed. And this one, you, when I talk about this will ring true. The truth is that faith's value is rooted, it is rooted in the soundness and worthiness of the object. You can boast that you have incredible faith, and you may have incredible faith, but if you place it in an object that is limited or that is unworthy or cannot follow through, I want you to know your faith is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. Nothing will happen if you put your faith in something that can't deliver. If I almost thought about having a chair up here, like a broken chair with a broken leg. You can trust and put your faith all day long that that chair will hold me. And when I go to sit on it, the chair is still going to fall down and break, right? My faith will do nothing to make something that's limited or powerless. It won't give it the ability to do what I want it to do. In fact, the inability of an object to consistently hold up to its end of the bargain, it actually negates the faith. No matter how powerful the faith, that object will negate it. Does that make sense? I can have huge faith in a broken chair, and that will negate, that brokenness will negate my faith. And that's why placing my faith in my faith is so um, fraught with peril. I know this personally, trust me. If my faith is in my faith, I'm in deep weeds. Trust me, I'm an expert at this. I've done it many times. And here's how I know, because my faith levels, those feelings, those things that we try to conjure up as faith, those things are up and down all the time. They're changing all the time. The smallest winds will blow me in a different direction. And if I'm putting my faith in my faith, I'm in big trouble, right? I can't, that can't be the thing we're trusting in. My faith levels and my faith feelings are totally untrustworthy. And when we put our faith in our faith, I want you to know Satan loves that. And he will have a field day with you because you'll pray something with some doubt, not sure it'll happen, and it won't. And then he's going to come to you and he's going to say, see, I told you so. The problem's you. If you had faith, the right kind of faith, enough faith, it would have happened, but it didn't. So it's your fault. You're a loser. You're a loser in everything. You're a loser with God, right? And then we get discouraged and defeated and our focus becomes totally on ourselves. I'm looking at myself and my faith instead of looking at him. And I think that's his playground. I think you would agree with me there's only one solid, unchanging thing that can function as the rock and the object of my faith. And what do you think that is? A thing or a person? What would you guess? Only one thing, one person. Lucas, what would you say? Uh -oh, big pressure. Jesus or God, right? The only place that I can certainly put my faith. And so that brings me to the third thing I want you to know about faith. Faith needs an object. It's only as strong as the object in which it is placed. And finally, I want you to see that God is the only worthy object of our faith. He is the only worthy object of our faith. 
True faith has God and God alone as its object. God and God alone. True faith always keeps it before him, before it, the only certain, secure, object worthy of my full and absolute trust, and that's God. Only he's worthy of putting my faith in. Brian Barrier has said, simply put, faith, I love this, his definition, faith is an unwavering confidence in the nature of God. An unwavering confidence in the nature of God. And specifically, it is a settled trust in the character of God as revealed to us by him in his word. That's what faith is. It's taking him at his word with him as the object. That's why Peter, when when he was fishing and they caught no fish all night, and then Jesus comes up and he says, hey, I want you to go out and cast nets. And Peter, we don't know, I mean, doesn't say this, but we know what he thought it, right? He's like, you're a carpenter, I'm a fisherman, it's the wrong time of day, we didn't catch anything when it was the right time of day, there are no fish, what are you thinking? But then he says this, but nevertheless, at your word, I will put down my nets, with no faith that anything would happen, but he took Jesus at his word. That is what it means to put faith in God as the object. That's what that means. About a month ago in our insights, we read some very powerful words from John White, and I want to reread them, read them to you again. Here's what he said. To realize that faith is your response to something God does or says will take pressure off you and enable you to adopt a more constructive attitude to it. Do not look inside of yourself and ask, how much faith do I have? Look to God and ask, what is he saying and what would he have me to do? When Jesus praised the great faith of different men and women in the Gospels, he was not praising a mystical inner state. He was usually commenting on a concrete action by, by which somebody responded to him. Once you understand this, you'll also begin to see why the amount of faith you have is less crucial, is a less crucial issue than you might have thought. The saying of Jesus about the grain of mustard seed begins to make sense. How much faith did Martha need to get Lazarus back from the dead? Precious little. If we're to go by mystical interstates, every evidence points to Martha having no faith at all. No, what she needed and what she had was enough faith to simply give orders for the tombstone to be moved in spite of all the doubts that she felt. And Lazarus was raised from the dead. And he ended, faith then is your decision to respond to God's word. Faith is your decision to respond to God's word. So, Hear me this morning. Faith is not this feeling that I have to gin up, okay? Let's quit thinking that way. I love the, the train that Campus Crusade, or crew as they call them now, teaches to every new believer. Because I think the way we look at faith is very feelings-based. Did I, did I gin up enough feeling? That to, to us, I think that's what faith is a lot of times. And they teach believers early on that most humans in the world, 80% of people, live by their feelings. The feelings are the driver of their life. They're the engine of the train of their life. And what they feel they do and what they don't feel they don't do. I mean, we all understand that, right? And they try to teach them that we need to live a life different, that the thing that drives the engine of our life is fact, that I know the Word of God, I know God revealed in the Word, and I put my faith in the fact of what I know about God, and my feelings will follow. And so that's my call this morning, is that we would put more and more God as the object of our faith and be living fact, faith, and feeling. All right, let me land this plane. It's not about the size or the strength of your faith. It's about the size and the strength of the one in whom you place 
your faith. So let's commit today to getting rid of this idea that little faith means unanswered prayers. Okay, let's get past that. Hear me, weak faith in God, weak faith in God is better than strong faith in anything else. Weak faith in God is better than strong faith in anything else. And if I've said this too much, forgive me, but I really feel the need to say it because I need to hear it. Trust me, I need to hear it. It is not the size of your faith that counts. It's the object of the faith that counts. That's what counts. Some people say faith moves mountains, and I want you to know that is not true. God moves mountains. And we saw it in the story. If it was faith that set him free, they had no faith. They did not believe it was going to happen. They prayed yes with little faith, but God moved a mountain and God set Peter free. Now, by saying all this, I'm not saying, saying don't grow in faith, don't seek to grow in faith. That's all important. But if I were to come back to what I said at the beginning, it's this, that the amount, the level, the intensity, the size, the strength, the purity of my faith is not key to God answering and acting. My faith is not the key. It is God himself who is the key. We just sang a song, and in it, it said this, No sky contains, no doubt restrains all you are, the greatness of our God. No doubt restrains the greatness of our God. But we think that so often, right? That my doubts restrain him. Tell you a quick story. And then I want to end with an application. Um, this week, I've known I was going to preach on this story for several months. Because I love this story and it challenged me a couple of years ago about where was I putting my faith? Was it in my faith or in God? And this week I spent time working on it. We had a student from from Iraq who had studied here, who went to Penn State, who came back to visit us. Um, Kareem, we worked really hard at loving him, building a relationship with him. God had put Christians in his life at different points, and so we were really working at that relationship and developed a very close bond, so he wanted to come back and visit us. And we knew that he loves the Flint Hills, and he loves Kansas sunsets. And when you're, in, when you're out east, trust me, when we live in Virginia, you don't see the sunset behind the Appalachians. Sun goes down like at five behind the mountains. You never see the sunset. And mountains are one thing, but the Flint Hills are something totally different, right? And so he thought he was coming to our house to eat supper, and we decided what we would do is take him out to the Flint Hills, get supper and go out there. And we have a friend in this church who actually has a place out in the Flint Hills, and in the back of their place is an amazing view of the Flint Hills. I just love to, Pat and I sometimes just go there. Um, and a few weeks ago, my friend had sent me a photo, and he says, look what I saw this morning. He went up to the back of the place, and the bison were, they had moved the, pasture, the bison into the pasture that was around that back area. And they were right up against the fence. And I'm like, oh, that is amazing. I would love to get that close to his bison. So the next, that's a big pasture though. So the next Sunday, I took Pat. I thought, it was the week before, I think, July 4th, I think. Took Pat out there. And just to see the Flint Hills, we love the Flint Hills. And I thought, man, if we can get close, if those bison are there, that'd be awesome. So we went out there. And it's a big pasture, and the bison were kind of off in a distant hill. But it was still a great view. The weather was perfect, and so we enjoyed the view. Um, it was so nice. I'm like, man, I should do a sermon out here, like in the glory of God. And I looked on my phone weather app, and it was going to be cool. So I spent the day out there on that back area. But the bison, again, were off in the distance. Um, 
Pat and I went out another time. I think it was Pat and I that went out another time, but the bison were close to that place. So we're taking Kareem out there to that very spot, and we're driving out, and I thought, I said, Lord, it would be really awesome if you could have the bison close for his sake. And as soon as I prayed that, here's was my next thought. Garen, that is such a little thing. Like, who cares? Why would God do that? Does that matter? A hill of beans in anything universe? And I immediately started thinking, that's not going to happen. And then I'm like, Garen, I've been working on this. I just was working on this two days ago. That is not what I put my faith in. But I was doing it again because it's so easy to do, right? And we showed up and we ate at a picnic bench that's on that property. And then we came over to look out back. Guess what? They were all, I mean, all 400 of them right there. And we enjoyed them and the sunset and everything. But I just want you to know, my faith in that prayer was so stinking minuscule. And God's like, your faith is not the thing that binds me to answer or not answer. I'm going to do what I'm going to do out of the goodness of my heart. Does that make sense? I'm still struggling with this. I'm still struggling. So, boy, I tell you, talking about prayer to me, just like talking about the Holy Spirit, it is, it's humbling Prayer is such a mystery. It is so multifaceted. I've just kind of hit one aspect. You know, be careful. You can take this thing I've talked about that I think is biblical, and if you try to string it out too far, you could run into problems. There, there's so much to say about prayer. I'm going to come back to prayer later this year. Um, I want to look at what Jesus meant when he said, if you pray asking in my name, you'll receive it. Because John, in his epistle, in his letter, talks about what that means. So we are going to come back to that. But... Um, I've just only hit one little thing related to prayer and faith today. So I want to close with a question. And the question is this. Is your faith in your faith or is your faith in God, honestly? Where do you put your hope and your faith? Is it in God or is it your ability to pray great faith-filled prayers? Where, where are you putting your faith? And I want to end. I, I, I dare not stop there. I want to end by giving you very briefly a model, God is the object of our faith prayer. I want to give you a model prayer of what it looks like to pray with God as the object. And it's from our master, our rabbi, the one we follow, Jesus. It's the prayer he offered in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm going to show you this prayer in a minute. But let me read in Mark 14, 32 to 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Now pay attention. There's four things in Jesus' prayer that to me are the four things that are in a God as the object of our prayer. prayer. And here they are. He says this, Abba, Daddy, Father, Dad, everything is possible with you. You can do anything. Three, take this cup from me. And four, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I see in that prayer the four things that are part of a God is the object of my prayer prayer. And here they are. God-centered faith puts trust in the goodness of God. Father, Abba, Daddy. Adam, right now, Adam, you're a daddy. You know what it's like to be a daddy. You want to give good and perfect gifts to your son, right? That I trust that of the Father. I trust in his goodness in my prayer. Daddy, 
And then the second thing I pray is my God-centered faith trusts in the greatness of God, that he's able to do anything. Lord, I know you can do anything. I know that. I know that from your word. And then God-centered faith, it takes its request to God. We're commanded in the word. So he tells us in the word that if don't be anxious about anything, but, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known. So I take my request to him. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant may, they may seem to me, right? Like bison in the back, right? Doesn't matter. I take my requests. Trust in God prayers takes their request to God. And then finally, God-centered faith. It trusts in the wisdom of God. It trusts in His wisdom that He knows the beginning from the end, that He causes all things to work for my good. It work restoring all of creation back to Himself. I don't got it all figured out, but I want to trust in Him. And here's what I love about Jesus. Of those three components of the thing, His prayer is totally unanswered, right? He does not get number three. But that does not negate for him, number one, the goodness of God. It does not negate the greatness of God, and it does not negate the wisdom of God. And Jesus walks confidently into that non-answer because his faith wasn't in his faith. It was in the Father, the object of his faith. Does that make sense? So my challenge to us is let's start praying more. God is the object of our faith kind of prayers. And fewer of the, I say a prayer, and then I'm like, well, I really don't believe that's going to happen, so it's not going to happen, okay? That's a faith in my faith type of prayer. It's just, Father, you are good. You're my daddy. You're great. You can do anything. This is my request. I'm leaving it to your wisdom, and I'm done. I'm not going to sit and psychoanalyze myself afterwards because it's all about you. It's not about me, okay? So can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this story. I thank you for how it challenged me. I thank you how it still challenges me, that it encourages me to get my faith off of my faith. And my faith unto you is the object. Help 12th helped us to be the kind of people center our faith on you and not our ability to gin up enough feelings or to not have doubt. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your greatness. Thank you for your wisdom that we can depend upon. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, 12th, there's a lost world out there in Emporia. So as always, you guys are sent. <laughs>